what thou meanest by seizing the whole earth. But because I do it with a petty ship, I am called a robber, whilst thou who dost it with a great fleet art styled emperor. That is a quote from an ancient pirate talking to Alexander the Great about the difference between being a pirate and an emperor. And yeah, this is recorded by St. Augustine, and he says that it is an apt and true reply from the pirate. Yeah, apt and true. Uh, which I, I agree, too. This, this is kind of a classic sort of sentiment, the like, when you do it, it's law, when I do it, it's crime kind of observation, very anarchistic kind of critique. It's hard to argue with, too. Yeah, when states do it, it's military conflict. When non-state actors do it, it's terrorism, that kind of thing. So yeah, that sentiment has been floating around for over 2,000 years. This would be like 2,300 years ago-ish. Uh, yeah, and just as apt and true today as it was uh, back then, 3,000 years ago. Speaking of apt and true things, welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. Our guest today is Marcus Redeker to talk about pirates, and it is also very apt and true discussion. Apt and true. Yeah. If you absolutely. like apt and true things, you're in the right place. Friends and enemies listening for subtle weaknesses to try to exploit in the future. Welcome to Seriously Wrong. <laughs> You're not getting anything on us. That's what I have to say to the enemies, no way. as I always now. do. But enjoy the show. A I hope of, everyone enjoys the show. A lot of haters uh, turn into fans when they hate listen. Yeah, because... they enjoy the show so much and they can't find anything. And then and One of the things that makes the show so enjoyable to even the haters is our great guests. Absolutely. Yeah. Many former haters have said that to us, that they were won over, not by us, who they still kind of hate, but by the guests. Our great guests. Yeah. Speaking of great guests, this week we have Marcus Redeker, professor of Atlantic history at the University of Pittsburgh and an author of a number of history from below books on maritime labor history, the transatlantic slave trade and pirates. So it's a great honor to get a chance to speak to Marcus Redeker today. I read his book, the Villains of All Nations, about the golden age of piracy, absolutely loved it, and Under the Banner of King Death, which is a graphic novel based on that book, Villains of All Nations, that's available now. We both had a chance to read it before recording. It's like a, a fun, accurate pirate story. Yeah, and it's probably, I don't know this for sure, but it's probably the only graphic novel ever based on the real, true pirate lore, the deep pirate lore. Uh, and not sort of like a Treasure Islandy, Hollywoodized, Pirates of the Caribbean type vision of pirates that is inaccurate, as you'll come to learn through this interview. So if you're looking for a comic book that is historically accurate and about the labor history of pirates, about all the cool things about pirates, including their egalitarian practices, the way that they oppose unjust states, 
the way that they fight for and stand up for themselves and all of the eccentricities within the pirate sphere. I strongly recommend this book. It was drawn by David Lester, who previously did another graphic novel I really enjoyed, which is called 1919, which is about the history of the Winnipeg general strike, which I read when we were working on our general strike episode, which is great. You should check that out too, after you're done listening to this one. (laughs) And in between, you should sign up on Patreon if you haven't already, because um, your donations make the show happen. And we really, really appreciate it. It means that we don't have to resort to seafaring piracy in order to keep the show going. But if it comes to that someday, fingers crossed, we don't have to, but yeah, honestly, I feel like it would affect the quality of the show if we were at sea all the time. Right. Yeah. We don't know the first thing about sailing and like, Oh, I'm just thinking of the sound of the waves in the background. It'd be so loud. I don't think it's a good audio environment recording at sea. Yeah. And, um, and the loneliness too. I mean, it's small crews and like, sure. Yeah. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter how much you like someone. There's a certain point that you don't want to be on a small boat with them forever. Like, it's a small crew. People turn it on each other. Worse audio quality. Some sort of, like, pirate swashbuckling fight between Aaron and I over some issue that we're really passionately angry about. These are the kinds of things that you are preventing from happening when you become a seriously wrong donor on Patreon. If you sign up at the beautiful genius tier or above, you get access to bonus episodes and the whole archive going back to square one back in old 2014 the old days so long ago that they only had photos in black and white then so yeah pirates are fascinating uh this is a fascinating and great interview thanks again to marcus redeker for coming on the show to talk to us and definitely check out under the banner of king death it's a graphic novel that's a great read it's got the graphic part it's got the novel part if you're a graphic novel fan and a pirate fan this is the pirate graphic novel for you thanks a lot for coming on i've really been looking forward to this good thank you i guess one good starting question to start building out this world of pirates is how did the pirates in the real world see themselves what was the pirate perspective on piracy pirates i think saw themselves primarily as sailors as working people who had had a certain set of experiences as they labored on tall ships around the Atlantic in the early 18th century. Very important to know how difficult and brutal the working conditions were for common sailors in that time. And we can get into that in more detail if you like. But in terms of self-image, I think they were people who wanted to be free They wanted to escape this uh, horrific line of work they were in, and they were willing to risk their lives in order to have that liberation. They had a saying. uh, They said, uh, a merry life and a short one, which basically meant, we know there's a good chance we're going to get hanged in the end, but it's worth it. So we'll live freely for a year or two on board our own ships, uh, and so it goes. So the conditions of the sailors during this period played a big part in people deciding to turn to piracy. What were the driving forces, including that, that brought people to piracy? Was the sort of greedy, stacking treasure <laughs> stereotype that you hear? Right. Is that an element as well? Yeah. You know, this is, uh, this is actually a, a very important question because if you see the image of the pirate in popular culture, basically the pirate is, uh, as you say, greedy and all about nothing except money, treasure, and buried treasure at that. But 
I wasn't completely satisfied with that explanation. So I began my research years ago by asking a fairly simple question. That is, what did pirates think that they were doing? And why did they do it? It turns out the answers you know, to that question lead to a very different kind of history, what I call a history from below, in which you study the actions of poor people, ordinary working people, and try to understand the past as they saw it. Now, what kind of experience had they had? Well, you'd have to know, first of all, that the deep sea sailing ship, you know, those beautiful, majestic, tall ships that we see, uh, they're, very, they're about 200 replica ships of that kind these days. This was the most sophisticated machine of its day, and it was the key to the establishment and growth of a global system of capitalism. In other words, these ships and the laborers who worked on them, those common sailors, were the very things that connected the continents, connected the oceans, created the world market, and essentially established a new kind of economy, a capitalist economy in the 18th century. In order to do that, the ship captain, who is a very important figure in all of this uh, as a kind of manager of labor, the ship captain was invested with extreme powers. The captain of the ship was, uh, as one sailor put it, like a monarch at sea, a kind of absolute power. And that included the power to discipline or to use violence to ensure the cooperation of his sailors. So one of the first things that any sailor in this period would have uh, really remarked about had we been able to ask about their work experience, it would have been the lash, the cat of nine tails, the thing that captains use to keep order. So this is a violent world, but there's more to it than that. Sailors were notoriously cheated out of their wages, bilked, we might say, out of their wages by their captains uh, who would drive them to desert and then keep all the money for himself. That was a very common thing. The quality of the food that they had to eat as sailors was, uh, was horrible. In fact, pirates used to laugh about this. They'd say things like, well, that bread that we had or that biscuit that we had had so many vermin in it that it could walk around by itself. So very poor quality food. And therefore, given all these things, the mortality rates among sailors was quite high. So sailors, many of them, when it came time to consider uh, becoming a pirate, some of them thought, well, you know, we may not live that long anyway. Let's make the most of the time we have and live differently. So this set of working conditions, I think, was a tremendous uh, push factor in making common sailors desire to become pirates and to escape, in a way, the, the death machine in which they were caught. Yeah, I could only imagine living on a boat with your boss who has the power to whip you at any time. And like, yeah, it would be very attractive to, you know, throw him overboard and take over the ship yourself. <laughs> that, that's what they did. That's exactly what they did. Quite a few people became pirates after mutinies. In other words, they would rise up on these merchant ships and capture the ship sometimes put the captain in a boat and send him ashore, sometimes just throw him overboard. Uh, but a lot of other people became pirates when their own ship was captured by pirates. And this is interesting because one of the things the pirates would do 
is undertake what they call the distribution of justice. This is, that's a really interesting work category. Uh, ships had someone called the dispenser of justice. So they'd go on board these prize ships and they'd line up all the sailors uh, of that ship on one side and their captain, who was their captive now, on the other. And the pirates would say to the common sailors, how does your captain treat you? And if they said, our captain is a son of a bitch who beats us and takes our wages and you know oppresses us in various ways, that captain was in a lot of trouble because the pirates would then act the part of avengers. They would basically shackle that captain, tie him up to the place on the ship where he would whip his own sailors and then give him the whipping of his life. So this is a very interesting thing. And then after that, the pirates would say to the sailors on that ship, okay, who wants to come with us? And believe me, if you said something bad about your captain, you'd better go with the pirates because once they leave, he's going to have you pinioned and getting whipped. So, uh, so this is the way people were recruited to piracy. Again, trading on this idea that the way they had been treated as common sailors was unacceptable. And I might add, pirates also had a very good sense of humor. They practiced uh, what's known as gallows humor, because of course, everything they did they did in the shade of the gallows. But I'm surprised, actually, as, I, as I've done research, to see just how funny they actually were. Yeah, on that, in The Villains of All Nations, there's an excerpt from a pirate play that they put on, making fun of judges, sentencing them to death and stuff. <laughs> I was surprised at how much the humor held up. Yes, no, <laughs> there are great continuities in the uh, injustices of the legal system. So, so you're right, this play that pirates performed in 1721 is really hilarious. It's a tremendous spoof of the English criminal justice system at that moment. And of course, as sailors and as pirates, uh, many people had a direct experience of it, but it was just a wild, wicked, good fun. Because what uh, one pirate would do, would uh, he would be the chief judge and he would put a an old mop head over his own head so as to resemble those wigs that the judges actually wore. He took a black uh, tarpaulin, a sort of tarred piece of canvas, and threw it over his shoulders to resemble the black robes that judges wore. So this whole thing was done with uh, great attention to detail. They put a fellow pirate on trial for being a pirate. They said hilarious things. They laughed. They carried on. Uh, and I think this is just a great piece of uh, self-entertainment and one that, as you say, is relevant for our own times. And now, the Wrong Boys' official adaptation of Mock Court of Judicature to Try One Another for Piracy, which was the comedy play written by and performed by pirates during the Golden Age of Piracy, as recorded by Captain Charles Johnson in A General History of the Pirates, and then relayed to us by Marcus Redeker. We've tried to preserve the jokes that the pirates wrote, and this is an important thing to us. Very rarely will we adapt someone else's work on our show, uh, and all these jokes are pirate jokes. Just to be clear, uh, let's get going. Oh, 
Order in the court. Order in the court. Your Honor, we need to hang this sad dog of a man. He's committed crimes on the high seas, Your Honor. He's a pirate. And perhaps the worst crime of all, Your Honor, is he's a little bit drunk right now. He's got a buzz. He likes to have a good time. And uh, how do you plead, you sad, sad, whimpering dog? I'm not guilty. (gasps) Not guilty? The devil you are. Say that again, you drunken partying dog, and I'll make sure they hang you tonight. I'm a small bean, sir. I'm timid. I'm innocent. I've been taken advantage of. I'm an honest man, a poor man, a notorious pirate duo, the wrong boys. They they, they forced me, sir. I I was threatened by them. I'm, I'm completely innocent. I'm timid, really. I'm... I've heard enough of this nonsense. Let's put this sad dog to judgment. Excellent idea, Your Honor. This sad dog should be judged right away. For if he has a chance to speak, he might convince us that he's innocent. And that would bring a mockery to the whole court. It's an affront to our way of life. Seems reasonable. Sir, may you please consider that- Consider? (laughs) Consider. You be careful, you sad little dog, or I'll make it a high treason to consider anything. No considerations are allowed under my watch. Please, sir, can you listen to reason? (laughs) Listen to this scoundrel. He's a regular Carl Sagan. Reason? What does a court have to do with reason? I'll have you know we don't sit here on the bench trying to reason. We go according to law. Whenever reason and law are in conflict, we will take the law. And reason and law are made to be in conflict. Now, is my dinner ready? Yes, my lord. Then hark, you rascal, sad dog, you hear me. You must suffer and be executed now for three very important reasons. Number one, I'm not going to sit here all day and be a judge if nobody's getting hanged. Number two, you in particular must be hanged because you have a particularly hangable face. Just look at you. And number three, I'm hungry, and I'm sure you know... It's custom that when dinner is ready, before the trial is over, the prisoner is, of course, hanged. That's law for you, dog. Now take him away, jailer. And that was Mock Court of Judicature to Try One Another for Piracy, a classic pirate sketch, a bit that they wrote back in the 1700s. It's a beautiful thing. You know, when, when you see the popular depictions of pirates, the thought of pirates being kind of like striking workers in the middle of this world colonial system where there's these massive warships, like some of the most you know expensive advanced technologies of their society that they're flipping and then turning over towards the process of then flipping more ships and, mm-hmm. you know, stealing the goods of the richest people in the world. This was like an economic choke point of world capitalism Mm -hmm. at the time. How does society react to this wave of pirates? Well, they react in a variety of ways. If we look at how the ruling classes of the Atlantic react, they are totally infuriated. But notice that their attitude towards chop piracy has changed. For example, in the 1660s and 1670s, Buccaneers like Henry Morgan, based in Jamaica, would attack the Spanish main and bring back silver to the English government. So the English ruling class benefited from that kind of piracy. 
the next generation of pirates in the 1690s, typified by Captain Kidd, William Kidd, there were lots of very wealthy merchants still involved in that kind of piracy. But when you get to the third generation, the generation we're talking about in the 17-teens and the 1720s, that's the point at which ordinary common working sailors got control of the enterprise. And this caused a howl of protest from these people who ran the world capitalist system. Now, notice their interests have changed. By the time you get to the early 18th century, the sugar economy is well established, and there is a tremendous amount of money to be made by lawful, regular trade. And now here come all these pirates, and they're disrupting this lucrative trade. So in my argument, pirates actually caused a crisis in the world capitalist system. They captured literally thousands of vessels. This became a a major problem for the people, the architects of empire. And it was finally the complaints of merchants, merchants in the slave trade specifically, who petitioned parliament to send a naval convoy after a group of pirates led by uh, Black Bart Roberts off the coast of Africa. And that ended up being the decisive battle in the golden age of piracy. Uh, Roberts was killed in action. His crew were captured. 52 of them were hanged. And this is kind of the beginning of the end of piracy in 1722. But but it's really important to understand that this is no you know kind of playful joke. These pirates were disrupting the profits of the most powerful people in the world. Um, and how did regular people respond, you know, you know, working people of the shorelines? One of the most fascinating things that I discovered about pirates is that they were already working class heroes in their own day. In other words, I'll give you an example. Uh, several groups of pirates were captured and brought into Boston and then at the public execution. And of course, that's a big part of the struggle against pirates too. You hang as many of them as you can, and you create these spectacles to try to teach the lesson to the other sailors and the other people. This is what we'll do to you if you dare to oppose us. So Cotton Mather, a very famous Puritan minister, Cotton Mather loved to speak at these big events, but he would go back and write in his journal at the end of the day, why are these people by whom he met pirates, why are they heroes? To all those people out there in the crowd. And they were, to a great many of those people, heroes, partly because they had kind of gathered up all their courage and tried to live in this new way, but also because pirates used the gallows as one last chance to oppose the authorities of the day. There are these great dramas enacted on the stage of the gallows in which the pirates say things like, uh, do I repent? No, I do not repent. I wish I had been a greater problem to all the rich men of this place. And of course, that would elicit cheers. Uh, And it also meant that the authorities would have to have a large armed guard at the gallows to prevent the rescue of these pirates. It did happen once. Pirates were actually rescued from the gallows by the crowd in Jamaica. And I think it was in 1717. But they learned a lesson, and after that, they had lots of soldiers with, uh, you know, with their arms in front of the gallows to keep the crowd away. And let me just add one more point, just to make clear. Look, it, it was enough 
that these pirates were attacking the property of the wealthiest merchants in the world. That alone would get you hanged. But when you're doing that, and at the same time creating a powerful subversive example of how you can run a ship from below in a democratic egalitarian way, that was something that the authorities simply could not tolerate. And this really fueled their desire to exterminate pirates as completely as they could. I mean, they undertook a campaign of annihilation. And it was partly because of the, the attacks on property, but it was also because of this way in which sailors finally had the choice of themselves and organized a very different kind of society. Welcome back, everybody, to Mr. History, the only time-traveling interview show. Now, today on Mr. History, I'm extremely excited. We have a very special guest. We traveled back in time to the golden age of piracy, and we are talking to a real-life pirate. Welcome to the show. Yar, thanks for having me. I, I don't usually say that, but I thought I... Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my first questions. Do you say yar, ar, yo, ho, ho? Is that how you all talk? Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of that, yeah. More, more swearing, though. We're oh, like, oh, fuck you, fuck your mother, you know? Like, oh, fuck you. Go fuck yourself. Right, right, right. And on our ships, there's people from all sorts of different places, like different accents, different languages being spoken. So personally, I never said yar very much. Yeah, I always pictured you all talking the same. Fascinating, fascinating. But uh, enough of the preamble. I think the real question here everyone is dying to know in the audience is how much treasure did you personally have and where in the world did you hide it? We're not really into hiding treasure. We're more, we want to get treasure to spend it to be rich to live good lives for short periods of time so we we never really but surely sometimes you had so much like overflowing rubies and gold coins that you would just put it in a really sort of ornate gold chest and hide it somewhere and then make a map map. that explains where it is yeah Yeah. no i I was really hoping for one of those maps these sort of shows all the time but if you had one on you uh no we don't really so I don't know, maybe there's something that exists that no one's ever found and that I don't know yeah, like about. Like in a sunken pirate ship, maybe? No, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that is a legitimate place where treasure hunters could find pirate treasures in a sunken pirate ship. It's happened before. All right, I'll just write that down. But you don't know maps. But like, yeah, no map with like an X with a buried, you know, buried in the sand kind huh. of thing. That's not really a real, real thing. Okay. Well, but it was really interesting about pirate ships, actually, and sort of what I'm excited. Where do you think they would get sunk most likely? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not here to help you find treasure. Just, I just. Oh. I I don't know. I was just kidding. No, I was just curious about the sinking because you got attacked a lot. Yeah. So I guess wherever pirates were, so that'd be like the Caribbean, Madagascar. Uh, but there's pirates all over the world at different times in history. Vikings were a type of pirate. Uh, there's a huge federation of pirates of uh, China in the early 1800s. Maybe they have sunken treasure too. I I don't know. That's not really my thing. Hiding I'm treasure, talk to treasure. Viking and Chinese. But I, I really wanted to talk more about sort of the egalitarian practices of pirates. This is happening against a cultural context. Egalahunian. Sorry, is that a pirate? You know, okay. Um, equal, fair, fairness, democracy. 
Pirates right? had democracy. You've heard of democracy? Yeah, yeah. We yeah. so we we had an elected captain and quartermaster, and it was like a sort of a, a multiple power accountability system. They're elected. Wait. So you're saying pirate ships aren't sort of brutal hierarchies, or I think a Captain Hook, right? Like he was a strong pirate who ruled over his pirate ship. Um, you know, they just kind of boss everybody on the ship around, and like they don't have to do that much of the work themselves, but they get all the glory, and then the other pirates are kind of like below them in a story. It's like a little mini kingdom for the, like the really cool pirates, like the captains. No, they were elected and recallable. And it's like on a, on a merchant ship, you'd have like a, about 60 to one ratio of pay between the workers and the, the ship captains. But on pirate ships, it's more like two to one or 1.5 to one. So it was like a shareholder system. Everyone got an equal share except the quartermaster, who's kind of like a facilitator um, and distributes the money, and the captain, who directs them in conflict and boarding, uh, has they both have unique powers and responsibilities. They get more money, but they're elected and recallable. So it's a very equal kind of thing. And that's what's cool about pirates um, hmm. in this context. And the colonial dominating society, they believe fully in hierarchy. They believe in that kind of stuff. That's how sailors were treated on merchant ships. They were whipped. And that's sort of what caused people to leave for piracy to become pirates is because they were wanting to avoid that um, horrible oh, life. I was actually going to ask about how you got into piracy. Were you just kind of bored with your life on your estate, living as a noble person, a really wealthy person in your time? You felt the call to adventure and then become a pirate? Is that? Uh, no, yeah, nothing like that. I don't think anything really like that usually happened. It's more of like the way that you would try to sell a pirate book to someone who sees himself as a temporarily embarrassed statesperson. No, pirates were uh, exploited workers who banded together to break the law to make themselves wealthy and mm. live freely as a protest against an unjust society. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, because I was just thinking, like, if I found out which estates the pirates had come from, Maybe like the land there, there would be like things buried or, but yeah, no, if yeah, you're not, no, nothing, if they're just workers, they probably, probably wouldn't have estates. I would assume nothing is mostly buried, but may, I don't know, maybe. I don't. What about Treasure Island? Is that a real place? Question one. And question two, ghost ships. Was there more ghosts among pirates than the general population? Um, uh, yes. Yes, actually. To both of those, there is a real place called Treasure Island. Oh, yeah. yeah Do you know real. where it is? Yeah, I went there. That's where I buried my treasure. And that's where we all bury so our treasure. So you did bury treasure. I knew it. I yeah. knew he was holding that's his cards pirates. close. Yeah. And uh, ghost ships are a huge problem for us on Treasure Island. We spend probably, I don't know, half our treasure just buying things to protect ourselves from all the ghosts, all the victims. Wow. Um, yeah, that must haunt you. The victims live, of yeah, piracy, we're haunted yeah. by it. Yeah, and we're going to go to hell, and we love going to hell. We want to go to hell. We consider ourselves little devils. Now we're getting to the heart of things. This mm -hmm. is all that other stuff. That's why you we were do the things we do. Like is we're evil demons. Evil demons. Yeah, I'll really. kill you right now. I'll kill anyone anytime. I'll slit oh, any please, throat. Please don't. Now that 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 is the experience I was looking for. That's. That's real piracy. Um, yeah, so basically we put all of our big treasure in a big pile and we swim in it like Scrooge McDuck. And um, You do. You really Scrooge McDuck. Yep, so Isn't it's all the buried. consistency like too hard? It becomes sort of, you can dive into the yeah, coins like that? Yeah, it's not like too hard at all. We can. It's an old pirate trick, yeah. And you, 
I'm sorry to ask this again, but mm-hmm. by all means, no. You wouldn't happen book. to have a treasure map anywhere, do you? Um, yeah, let me try or to draw, could you you, draw one. I'll draw you one from memory, yeah. So if it, it looks the island itself looks exactly like this. And treasure could, island? Yeah, it's it's and I could only I can't remember if it was I'll give you a few places to look. Oh please, yeah. Yeah, so obviously you're gonna want to look for an island that's shaped like this and has a lake over here and the X marks the spot. That's where it's all buried. And you just need to, here you go. I'll just roll this up and you just have to find that. I'm sorry I can't get more specific, but right. once you find the island, you're set. Thank you so much so for So you're going to be able to find this so much is... treasure there when you finally find it. Yeah. And, and it's you my know, pleasure to help you. Thank you. I just wanted to mention, I feel like this also drives home a point about climate change and how important it is mm-hmm. that we keep the temperature of the earth from increasing because if the sea levels change, the shape of the island might completely change and that oh, treasure right. could be lost forever. Yeah, so. you wouldn't be able to use this map anymore. My information from the 1700s would become irrelevant to you and your future society over here. Exactly, yeah. It already could be kind of different just from like erosion or thing, Ooh. but we don't want to amplify that. Hopefully so. not. Yeah. Well, I'll let all the pirates know that that's a concern on the horizon, so we'll sort of change our practices environmentally to cool. increase the amount of time you have to find our treasure island yeah i think that would, that would be a big help. when i go back yeah no yeah. i'm happy to help all right well thank you we're out of time uh for this all right well i'm a devil i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna kill uh, uh you pirates you just re- just like i imagined that's uh that's so cool and we'll just uh press the button and send you back through the time portal now so say goodbye to everybody bye everyone yeah thanks bye bye, bye. yar <laughs>so there's kind of this utopian egalitarian vision of pirates. How did these sort of utopian idealistic ideas play into people joining pirates? And when people joined pirates, was it a, a, a false utopia? Was, were they promised more than they ended up getting? Well, you know, the word utopia is interesting in the con- this context because it actually means no place. But these pirate ships were real places. One of the fascinating things that happens is that the practices of pirates, real people in real circumstances making decisions, influenced a lot of writers who then wrote utopian tracts about piracy. And of course, the most famous of these is Libertalia, which was said to be a settlement uh, on the east coast of Africa set up by a pirate captain and a former priest. And they basically, uh, they practice democracy, they practice equality. And even though there, I mean, there still is debate about whether there ever actually was such a place called Libertalia. You might know the anthropologist uh, David Graeber, the late David Graeber. He's got a book coming out called uh, The Pirate Enlightenment, in which he talks about this settlement in uh, Madagascar. Uh, Fascinating book, I might add. But basically, utopian ideals are generated by the practices that these pirates undertook. And I think this is one of the things that begins to happen that creates that uh, sort of heroic image in the mind of other working people. Stories are told, pamphlets are written, books are written, but there's this circulation of a very fundamental fact, and that is 
you can run a ship in a way that is different from all those merchant and naval ships. You can run it in a way that the common sailor actually has some power. And I think this was very attractive to people uh, who wanted to join. And I think it was also attractive to people who were not in any position to join, but loved hearing these stories. They were inspired by them. In terms of uh, organization on pirate ships, can you talk a little bit about how that worked? Like you, you overthrow your boss or your captain and you have control of the ship now with your fellow workers. How did they handle that? Like how, how did they organize themselves? You know, this is actually the moment of truth. This is where you discover whether pirates actually have an agenda other than just accumulating wealth, right? Attacking vessels and plundering vessels. How do they organize themselves? And this turns out to be the most fascinating thing about them. These poor working sailors who had suffered so much abuse actually built a social world that was almost diametrically opposite to the one they had been forced to labor in. One of the first things they did on a pirate ship was to elect their captain. Now, you got to remember, this is in the 17-teens and 20s, working people had no democratic rights anywhere in the world. So to do all this by election is really fascinating. But they didn't stop there. They also elected someone called the quartermaster, and the quartermaster was basically a trusted comrade whose job it would be to make sure that the captain didn't misbehave, didn't abuse his authority. Then they would elect other members of the crew, like the dispenser of justice. So this thing is, a, is an enormous exercise in democracy from below. This is one of the things that's so fascinating about it. But they also did very important things to divide up their plunder in strikingly equal ways. If you look at the wage system on a naval ship or a merchant ship, you've got quite a strong hierarchy with the captain at the top and the common seaman way down at the bottom and a great distance between how much each of them would make. Pirates abolished the wage system. They did not consider themselves to be waged workers. They were instead risk-sharing partners and they divided up the loot very equally. And this is one of the things that they used to recruit other sailors to join them. You know, it's not, all this money is not going to the captain. It's being divided by the crew. And this trusted quartermaster would be the one who would oversee this uh, fair and equitable distribution of resources. They also would feast these people who were chronically starved given poor quality food, they'd take not only wealthy cargo from the ships they attacked, they'd also take food supplies and lots of wine and rum. And so pirates actually had, uh, had quite a wild scene. There was a lot of drinking. Uh, and that didn't always work out well because sometimes when uh, a, a naval vessel showed up to engage them in battle, uh, they were too drunk to fight back. <laughs> right. Some of the things that pirates did, I think, to people's common sense would seem impossible that you could overthrow your boss and then have an egalitarian way of organizing yourselves. And I could only imagine at the time it seemed it would probably seemed even more impossible, even more beyond the scope of people's everyday lives. And especially with the power of 
the church and hierarchy, this idea of like this divine natural hierarchy. And mm -hmm. the pirates had a pretty subversive take on religion. Is that right? They did. They were quite not only not religious, they were frequently anti-religious. I came across a case where one of the people that they captured, a group of pirates, was a uh, preacher, a, min a missionary actually, and he kept upbraiding the pirates on their way of life, how evil and wicked it was. Uh, and they warned him and told him to stop, shut up, they didn't want to hear it. You know, his congregants were forced to listen to him, they were not. Uh, and this guy wouldn't shut up. And so finally, they took a sail needle and rough twine and sewed his lips shut. So this, I thought, was sort of a commentary on religion. The answer was they didn't want to hear it. So, so that's, that, that's part of it. But, but here's the other thing, though. I, I, I can't really prove this, but my experience in doing all this research is that most sailors felt that they could run their ship without that captain. They just put somebody else that they trusted in that person's place. There are times when you need a central person in charge of giving work orders, you know, about how you uh, set the sails and how you maneuver and that sort of thing. But I think uh, in, a, in a real way, a lot of these common sailors knew that they could run these ships by themselves. Uh, and they wanted to try it. When it comes to leisure, uh, did pirates get a lot of time to just hang out, and or did they have to? <laughs> did they have to work all the time? Did they did, were they, they looking for leisure too? They did not have to work all the time, and they didn't want to work all the time. And there there are a couple of different factors involved in this. First of all, when you're at sea, even if you're just part of a regular crew, if when you're at sea and the sails are set and the wind is in the sails, there's not that much to do. Hence the sailors' culture of storytelling. So they'd sit around in a circle and tell stories while the ship was kind of clipping along. But even more importantly for pirate ships is that they were crowded. If a, a 200-ton vessel, let's say in 1720, a 200-ton vessel, that's about the size, by the way, not the weight, like 200 tons carrying capacity, that might have a crew of 18 to 20 sailors on a normal merchant ship. But on a pirate ship of 200 tons, there'd be on average about 80 people. So you've got, you know, four times as many people. And that means you can divide up the work in a way so that everybody works a lot less. And I might say escaping work was part of the pirate utopia. The Jolly Roger, another beautiful pirate image. It's got some symbolic meaning to the real life pirates. And this, the, the Jolly Roger came into prominence during the golden age of piracy too, right? That's right. Yeah, this is the image that everybody knows. It's the black flag with a skull and a crossbones on it. That's actually the symbol of death, the symbol of mortality. It was, in fact, much more common in the day of the pirates to have not just a skull and crossbones, but an entire skeleton. And frequently, the skeleton is holding a dart or an arrow that dart or arrow is sometimes piercing a human heart. Drops of blood would be coming out of that heart. And then in the other hand, the skeleton would be holding an hourglass. Now, there are interesting ways of interpreting the symbolism of these flags. And by the way, sailors, because they very commonly had to sew canvas sails, 
sailors were very good with needle and thread. So therefore, these uh, when they made a pirate flag, they had a bunch of people who were really skilled and could make these elaborate pirate flags because they, they knew the trade of sewing. So the first and most obvious interpretation of the pirate flag is basically as a threat. A pirate ship is chasing a, a potential prize vessel. The prize vessel may not know who they are, may not know they're pirates, but at some moment, some dramatic moment, the pirates are going to raise the black flag, raise the Jolly Roger. And the message of that symbolism is, you better surrender right now or we will kill you, right? This is the image of death, the skull and the crossbones, the skeleton. So surrender immediately is one message. And actually, most captains did surrender immediately. Pirate ships were faster Pirate ships were better manned. Pirates were more skilled sailors. They had more weapons. They had more cannon. And if you tried to outrun them, you probably couldn't do it. If you tried to fight them, you were almost certainly going to lose. So most captains just surrendered. So that's the first message. But uh, I've suggested that there's another layer to that symbolism. Actually, maybe more than one. And that, that, symbolism is a commentary on the life of the common sailor. So if you take those three images that I mentioned in the the skeleton on the black flag, violence is is part of it. Uh, Limited time is another part of it. That's the hourglass. I think this actually was quite an eloquent commentary on the way in which common sailors felt they were trapped in that death machine of the uh, naval or merchant ship. And so now what they do is they invert that imagery. They're going to fight for life under the colors of King Death. And I think that's one thing they do. And then let me just add one more layer of meaning to the Black Flag or the Jolly Roger. Uh, you, you would need to know that one of the things that the word Roger meant in the early 18th century was to copulate, right? To copulate. So when pirates raise the Jolly Roger, one of the things they're saying to the people they want to capture and to the governments who want to eliminate them, one of the main messages of the Jolly Roger is, fuck you. (laughs) I'm curious, speaking about uh, copulating, uh, was there any copulating going on on pirate ships? Were there women on board? (laughs) Was there uh, other types of copulating going on? There were all kinds of copulating (laughs) going on. Because look, this was a free space, right? This was a place where people could be free. The common sailor was in control. Now, we don't have a lot of evidence about same-sex unions among pirates, but we know they were there. They were quite common, in fact. There, there is some evidence of it. Uh, there were some women on board. I've, I've written about two of them in particular, Anne Bonney and Mary Reed, who were rough, tough pirates in every sense, and they both had uh, male lovers. Uh, it was believed for a while that they were lovers between themselves, and they may have been. But yeah, this was a place of sexual freedom. Um, you mentioned that on pirate ships, when a pirate ship is is uh, attacking you, you know that the pirates there are great sailors, that they outnumber you and they're some of the best sailors. What causes good sailors in particular to become pirates? I think the, the people who were the best sailors were the ones who had the keenest sense of exploitation. 
In other words, they knew the value of their labor. They knew that the way they ran these ships was really important to those wealthy merchants. They knew that their labor was crucial to this global system. And yet they said, you know, we're kicked about like dogs on deck. So I think there was a, a feeling that the, our skill actually helps to define our community. We're not just sailors, we're really good sailors. And we can prove it because once we join this ship, we can outmaneuver you and basically sail circles around you and capture you whenever we want. So there was definitely a pride in having that kind of skill of seafaring work. On a, on a packed ship, how do you deal with conflicts that arise? Like I've been in direct democratic meetings before and not everyone's always super friendly. <laughs> maybe getting like m maybe it is, you know, having the abundance of all this stolen materials, feasting and stuff might help offset some of the natural tendencies towards conflict. But how did they deal with that sort of stuff when it arose? Well, it's interesting. First of all, everyone had to sign an agreement. They were the pirates in a weird sort of way were constitutionalists. They had these articles in which you would agree to the basic principles of how this ship was going to be run. And if you disobeyed those principles, then you could be punished if the crew as a collective thought you deserved it, not just what the captain thought. Okay. So that's really important. But the pirates did have some rituals that were designed to maintain public order. For example, they didn't allow any fighting among pirates on board the ship. Now, you might get into a scrape with somebody and, you know, want to have it out. Basically, the rule was that you would challenge that person to a duel. And when the next time you come to shore, wherever that may be, might be a, an uninhabited island, might be in a port city, who knows, you two would go ashore with several other pirates and you would fight a duel of what they called sword and pistol. You would have one shot at each other. And if those shots missed as frequently as they did in those days, then you would have a battle with the sword. And the first one to draw blood would be declared the victor. Okay. Now, it didn't always work out that way. I'll tell you the story of Mary Reed, this woman pirate who sailed on a pirate ship in 1720. Her lover got into a scrape with a, a, another pirate and Mary, who, by the way, had a background as a soldier fighting in the continental wars of Europe, knew a lot about weapons, really knew how to fight. She was sure that this pirate, this other pirate was going to kill her lover. He challenged her lover to a duel to go on shore and Mary was just beside herself. Well, how did Mary solve this problem? She then got involved in a dispute with that same rugged pirate. She challenged him to a duel on shore, scheduled it one hour before he was supposed to duel her lover, went on shore and promptly killed him on the spot uh, and, and protected her lover that way. So this gives you an idea of what, what kind of women pirates we're talking about. These are really tough characters. Oh, look at that. It's a couple of cute little pirates. Look at them. Peg legs, hooks, eye patches. Don't you think they're cute? Nice costume, kids. Did you, you kids lose your eyes and hands on the exploitative ships of the colonizers? Or did you lose them after you mutineered your captain, slit his throat, raised the black flag, and declared war against the whole world? What's your story? You don't know? 
well, kids, you're really need, gonna need to get your lore down. I don't know if I'm believing pirate right now with none of this backstory down. Yeah, are you like <laughs> just saying thinking ancient pirates? Are you not thinking the Jolly Roger era? Because that Jolly Roger is really specific to the golden age of piracy, but actually. That's like a cartoony sort of kid version. The real version would have, you know, often like a full skeleton, sometimes devil horns, timepiece to remind you of the shortness of life, a sword or a spear piercing a heart. Right, uh, a merry life, but a short one, kids. You know, it's kind of like a suicidal way to live almost, isn't it? It's Right, no, yeah. It's, inten- it's like, hey, come and try and kill me, you bastards, or I'll kill you first. That's the energy I want you kids to be embodying here. Yeah, so like character motivation here, right? You're you're exploited workers, you've overthrown your bosses, you've turned to a life of crime, you know that death will come for you soon, so you raise this flag to both acknowledge that you might die, that life is short, but also to threaten other ships. That when they see that, it means they might be killed by you. And there's also a religious element, like Big Roger was a slang term for the devil, so they were sort of also putting a devil on their flag and they had this ideology they're destined for hell that religion is bad it's like saying fuck you you know fuck you to the church fuck you to everyone at war with the world right kids and it it, that was actually a really big deal at the time because blasphemy believe it or not back then was a serious legal offense and it was it was very sacred to the dominant culture uh that people respect god and that pirates were actually going to war with the church and even challenging God himself. So that's kind of like the ultimate blasphemy. Are you kids uh, old enough to know what anti-theism is? Okay, one last thing before we give you the candy. What are the moral bounds of permissibility when it comes to overthrowing your oppressors? I mean, think about it. Pirates are violent, but they're also, you know, minimize their violence. They use democratic practices and they're reacting to uh, inhumane, violent, torturous conditions, you know? They're inflicting violence on people who are themselves violent, primarily. They're not just killing anyone all the time just to try to get rich. They're actually going to war with institutions that are run by people who are brutally violent. How do you kids feel about that? Proletarian heroes, or is it a failure of means and ends? Maybe is that the wrong question to ask in this context? What do you What do you think? Well, just think about it then. Think about it and come back with an answer I was later. for a little engagement on that. I think it's kind of interesting. All right. You kids have been so good listening to us talking about pirates. Have some candy. Get on out of here and enjoy the rest of your night, you little rascals. (laughs) They're good kids. They're still learning. Yeah, but I mean, gonna wear the outfit. It's like wearing a band shirt and not knowing any of the songs. Yeah, it is a lot like that. And it similarly just gets under your skin. But, you know, I think we handled it well. Oh, yeah. No, I think... We could be babysitters. We should be babysitters. Yeah, especially the kids in pirate outfits, but all kids, yeah. We should start a babysitting company. We might have just found our new passion. I, just, I don't know. I was just dispassionately. Yeah, we could stock the closet with historically accurate pirate gear. Right. I mean, kids love pirates. They want to dress up as pirates. Let's. Why not have a daycare that does it accurately? That's just such a great idea. We just need a billionaire angel investor to help us get it set up. Yeah. Crap, I hope this doesn't become one of those ideas we get really passionate about for a short term, but that doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, probably not. Oh, wait, I got a great idea. What if we got the money to open a daycare by becoming seafaring bandits and turning to a life of crime? Then we could get the money we need to open up a daycare that we can have historically accurate pirate costumes for the kids. Yeah, I'm just worried... (sighs) 
can we go back in time and do it during the golden age of piracy? I'm worried if we do it in the modern age, it won't work. So, Yeah, I was just listening to this podcast by this guy, Mr. History. He's got the only time-traveling interview show. Oh, yeah, maybe we can maybe. take him down, get his machine. Oh, right, like attack? I was thinking of asking him, but you're, you're thinking of like, well, launching a physical attack on him for whatever technology he's using. I like it. That's that's straight into the point. That, I just assume he's his whole business is based on it, so he wouldn't want to share it. But maybe, I mean, we could try yours first. No, we should definitely really do this. No, yeah, I'm I'm being serious. I are you not being serious? I'm no, I'm being serious. So we're gonna attack physically, Mister History, History, who's a, on a podcast I listen to. Yeah, I mean, once we send ourselves back in time, they won't be able to find us. Right, and actually, after we're done, so we go back in time in the golden age of piracy. We get some plunder, and then we can use the time machine to go back to before we attack him physically, and give him the advice he needs to avoid the attack but also help him to plan faking that the attack was successful to trick ourselves earlier so we think that we successfully pulled off the attack but we've actually faked it with an actor who won't sustain any serious injuries because we'll prepare correctly and then we'll return the time machine technology to him so he doesn't have to go a moment without it and after that we can finally open our daycare that has historically accurate pirate costumes for the kids who have already shown an interest in pirates, including the ones we met tonight, hopefully. We should be writing this down. We'll just Maybe we'll just close the door, turn off the lights, no more Halloween candy today. Let's just get planning. Let's hammer out all these details, because this, this works. This is good. We'll just leave the bowl of candy outside, and with a sign that says, only take one, we're watching you. But we won't actually watch them. Yeah, and I mean, if someone takes it, then who th- who, who cares? It's not yeah, it's our not fault. our fault, yeah. We should really do this. Are we doing this? I think we're doing it. I'm. Do You I, You want to do it, right? I want to do it. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah, this is actually, this isn't going to be one of those plans. No, this no, no. It's going to be a new type of plan. Well, we followed through on things before. Never with the elegant precision that we've got planned before us, but I think we can pull it off. We had Graber on the show before he passed, and uh, last year we had Wengro on to talk about okay. the dawn of everything. And one of the things they talk about in the dawn of everything is the influence of indigenous democratic practices on right. the Enlightenment. Have you encountered any reason to to think that there might be an indigenous influence in the democratic practices of the pirates? It occurs to me that it's taking place you know, at the time of the transatlantic slave trade in the New World. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a connection there? Well, look, I mean, my way of approaching this is by emphasizing a revolutionary subject. And the revolutionary subject is the motley crew. This is the multi-ethnic group of workers on ships and on the waterfront. They are the ones who develop these alternative practices. And when they gain the opportunity on a pirate ship to set this up for themselves, they seize it and they do it. Now, within the Motley crew, there are many different influences, one of which is indigenous. There were indigenous pirates. This we know for a fact. We can't really see exactly what they contributed, but I think there is definitely a strong affinity between those indigenous democratic practices and the democratic practices that sailors were forming on the lower deck of these ships. So I think it would have been very easy to fit those together. 
Speaking of that Motley crew element, kind of, could you talk a bit about how they handled having all these different, like you have slave ships where people who were going to be sold into slavery are parts of pirate crews, people from uh, all different nations, and mm-hmm. um, how, how do they kind of make that work? Well, you have to remember, first of all, that sailors, before they become pirates, are used to working among multi-ethnic crews. In other words, if you go all the way back to the crew lists of Columbus and Magellan, you will find the motley crew. You will find sailors from Italy, from Spain, from Ireland, from Greece, from Africa. So so the motley crew is a standard part of the seafaring labor market for a very long time before this outburst of piracy actually begins. But people have often asked me, why would pirates be willing to take formerly enslaved people? Well, there's, there's one very good reason why. It's not necessarily ideological. It's practical. And the reason is what pirates wanted in the people who joined their ships was loyalty. They wanted people who would be loyal to the enterprise, people who would fight, people who would uh, be willing to risk their lives for what they were doing. Uh, And it turns out that a lot of people who escaped slavery in the Caribbean and in North America had military training from back in Africa, and they were very fierce fighters. And you can also imagine if you bring on board, uh, as happened very frequently, a group of, let's say, six or seven men who were fugitives from slavery, you could count on their loyalty to this enterprise because they weren't going back no matter what. So there are all these things that about the the specific nature of life at sea and the enterprise of piracy, which promoted incorporating people from different cultures so as to make their enterprise more successful. Another um, interesting thing going on around the the Caribbean around this time is uh, maroonage, escape slave communities, people escaping from the dominant society, building their own small scale things, sometimes fighting back. We recently did a two part episode on the Haitian Revolution and maroonage played a big part in that. Are there any connecting strands between maroonage and piracy and, and what are they? Well, I mean, look, in the most basic connection is that pirates were floating maroons. They were the refugees of the plantation and the maritime system, people who were running away from you know, slavery and from uh, wage slavery on board these merchant and naval ships. And so they just didn't have a landmass in the interior of some island. Uh, a, a sort of place where they could retreat to, they just retreated on their ships. So in a, in a very literal sense, pirates are floating maroons. But it's also true that European sailors, I found uh, a few instances, European sailors actually turn up in landed maroon communities that are primarily African. So once again, you've got this sort of motley crew and this circulation of ideas and practices but yeah, this is, a, this is a very important kind of resistance, this establishment of autonomous communities that are not under control of the colonial power. And people did that in the interior of Jamaica, and they did it on the high seas. Um, a classic, when, when I imagine a cartoon pirate in my head, I imagine, you know, a peg leg, hook hand, eye patch. How did pirate crews treat 
uh, disability? What was the relationship between these images and the reality? Well, there, as is usually the case with mythology, there is an important kernel of truth in it. The pirate image that you describe goes back to Robert Louis Stevenson and Treasure Island, and then it's been reenacted in popular culture again and again and again and again. But if you went back to the 18th century, what you would find is that since seafaring was such a dangerous line of work, okay, not, not only because of the captain, but because of the elements, because of falling gear from the main top, people were frequently injured as sailors. And then there's the whole issue of battle at sea, in which when two navies line up with their warships and fire at each other, this produces, when a cannonball hits a ship, an explosion of splinters. That's how you lose an eye. A chunk of uh, wood would take off your hand. A bigger chunk of wood might take off your leg. So it was actually true that in the port cities of the world, most of the beggars were sailors who had been maimed in one way or another. And they would beg. You know, this was how they tried to get money. So the image that has come down to us of the, of the man with an eye patch, with a hook for a hand or a peg leg, actually bespeaks the dangerous working conditions of being a sailor, which the pirates were trying to escape. So how did pirates treat their own who were injured in the course of doing the work? They set up a social security system which is really fascinating and something that existed before social security systems were enacted in other parts of any society. And what they said was that if in battle you lose an eye, you get a certain amount of money. If you lose a hand, you get a certain amount of money. If you lose a leg, you get a certain amount of money. They set this up so as to let people know that they weren't going to be treated on a pirate ship the same way they were treated on those other ships. They weren't going to sort of lose their limbs and then be thrown out. They were going to be given resources that would allow them to live. And so this is another part of the pirate code uh, and a very important part of, I think, their class consciousness of, of labor. Uh, they wanted to protect their own. This episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by The Distribution of Justice. All right, we're coming aboard. Here we come. Crossing boats into the boat. Hey, everyone. Uh, bloodthirsty pirates here. Yeah, so we outnumber you probably like five to one. You're not, there's no way you're going to win against us, so might as well surrender now. And Plus, you guys are all getting whipped, right? You're getting whipped. You've got welts on your back. You've got scarring from getting whipped. Well, I'm sure your morale's pretty low then. I'm not sure if you want to fight to protect the cargo of the people who whip you. Yeah, we're going to be taking the cargo. We got the captain here. Tie you up. Perfect. Captain's tied up. Uh, and we did have another question about the captain, actually. This is a fun little part we like to call the distribution of justice. Uh, how does your captain treat you? Was he violent? Was he inhumane? You've how already mentioned these whip marks, but maybe they came from previous captains, or was this... Was the captain a good man, or was... Did, did he bilk you of your wages? Did he lash you for no reason? Give you poor provisions? Was he a tyrant? That sort of stuff. Because we can just totally kill him. Up to you. Either way, we don't care. We just want the stuff, and 
just don't bother to fight us. We won't bother to kill you. But if you want us to take him out, we can. Also, if you want to join us, you can. Did yeah, we mention that? Absolutely. Yeah, we pay way better than the ship captains. Way better than anyone else. If enough of you want to join us, we could maybe take over the whole ship. Yeah, we could turn this into throw the old Jolly Raj up there and yeah, maybe our quartermaster will hop over there, become your captain. We get some new quartermasters, that sort of shit. Radical possibilities are open right now. Or you could go back and... We could put it to a vote. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, we do that. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to join us, you might probably die pretty soon, but if you're half decent on a boat, we get to live pretty well for a while. Yeah, they say it's a merry life, but a short one. How's that old song go? Here for a good time, not a long time? Classic, yeah. Yeah, those people who joined us for a while to save up some money to open an accurate daycare... They introduced us to so much great music. Yeah, those are great guys. I hope they open that daycare. It makes me cringe to know that the children of the future might not know what we were really like. The Distribution of Justice. <laughs> Proud sponsor of Seriously Wrong. When reading Villains of All Nations, I found myself thinking about how cool it would be to see stories, like fictional stories, that take place in this more real pirate universe. And this graphic novel, Under the Banner of King Death, does that really well. It's a very visceral, visceral story. How does that feel for you as someone who's researched this for a long... Is, is it right that you started researching this decades ago, like in the yeah. 70s or 80s? Yes, um, I actually... yes. I first published something about pirates in 1981 while I was a graduate student. And to be honest, the phone never stopped ringing. <laughs> the playwrights and novelists and journalists and treasure hunters. I, for years, I got calls from treasure hunters wanting to know if I had the maps where the pirates buried their treasure. And if they asked me that question, I knew they hadn't read my book because I said in the book that pirates didn't bury treasure. They wanted to kind of live in this world and live as well as they could. So they wanted to spend that money. But yeah, I, I wrote Villains of All Nations in 2004. And uh, just a few years ago, I basically got interested in graphic novels. And uh, after working with the artist David Lester on a graphic novel about a kick-ass abolitionist named Benjamin Lay, he was four feet tall and he would spatter slaveholders with fake blood to humiliate them in public. So we did, we did that, that book called Profit Against Slavery. And then we decided that we would create a second graphic novel about pirates. And I must say, working with David Lester has been a joy. He is someone who really understands history from below. He respects history. He wants the graphic novels to be historically accurate in every way. And it's just been a, a tremendous pleasure to see his creativity in rendering the villains of all nations story in the form of a graphic novel. Yeah. And when I was, when I was reading it, I, I felt like I kept on recognizing these elements and there's some of the exact elements that you want to see in like what, after you become familiar with what pirates were really like, you're like, I just really want to see this yeah. story. Like I'm, Johnny Depp isn't good enough anymore. Like the, it doesn't, <laughs> I want the real stuff. And yeah, the graphic novel does exactly that and sort of threading all these disparate elements um, into one cohesive narrative. 
of people rebelling, becoming pirates, fighting against the structures of society at the time. So yeah, is, there, there's some really great stuff in there. So like things you've mentioned too in this interview, like them at the gallows, speaking out to the people, like refusing to go along with what they're asked to say. And then there's like these reaction shots of these rich aristocrats sitting there, like sipping their tea, being all angry at them. Uh, or when they're doing these like mock trials on board and have the mops on their heads and stuff. Yeah, I, re I really enjoyed the graphic novel. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you talk with David Lester about this, he said that he deliberately wanted to use what we would call a gritty style of art, you know, sort of a rough, hard-edged set of images to convey the social world of pirates that we're trying to evoke. So there's a fascinating relationship between the story and the way in which David then visualizes and executes that as artwork. And uh, he, you know, in, in seeing his imagination put this story on the page, I myself learned a lot. Graphic novels in particular, I feel like have a really powerful expressive potential in the flow from panel to panel, image to image, text to text. They do something kind of unique that other media doesn't th exactly the same way. Th this must be the most faithful depiction of of pirates in fiction that that currently exists or among them, uh, do you think? I think it. I think it may be, but there are some good novels about piracy. Actually, some of them written in the 18th century that were quite realistic before Hollywood got involved. I might add. But the thing with uh, with the graphic novel is that it is a very different way to communicate a story. It actually has the potential because of the visual imagery to stay in one's mind for a longer time. It also is attractive, we think, to younger readers. We think that people who would probably never read Villains of All Nations might like to read Under the Banner of King Death. So it's basically been my goal over the last few years, you know, in my work as a historian, to bring history from below to people in almost every different way I can imagine created a documentary film about the uh, Amistad Rebellion of 1839. Uh, we've got the graphic novels, uh, two of them, and we have a third one coming on the New York Conspiracy of 1741. I've co-written a play with Naomi Wallace called The Return of Benjamin Lay. That's that Quaker abolitionist that'll have its premiere in London in June. I'm working with an author on a children's book so the idea is to use the graphic novel form to disseminate ideas and hope, frankly. I mean, I consider the pirate story to be a very hopeful one. Even though lots of them were hanged, this gives us hope because this was poor people uh, fighting the most powerful people in the world. Uh, and for a short time, at least, they, they won. We now go to two wealthy aristocrat hierarchy lovers discussing the pirate hanging of the day. Honestly, not the best pirate hanging I've seen. I mean, it had its moments, but sometimes their last words are a little more lively. Yeah, this one was going on and on about moral this and wages that and 
you'll pay this and I do justice like, that. And I like it when they repent before God. That, that That's my favorite one. You know, I just like it when the executor is brutal. And honestly, this executor, you know, the pirate kind of got a one-up on him when he mentioned that thing about the rope and the knots weren't good. And right, it, kinda, yeah, it, it didn't feel like the job. total domination that you want, even though he did get I executed. I mean, in sailors, they know rope. So yeah. I think everyone felt that he was probably spot on. I know I did. And it was embarrassing for the executor, which reflects poorly on the crown. Yeah, well, and just the sort of concept of hierarchy in general to yeah. be humiliated like that. Yeah. And the the thing the other pirate was saying, you know, my only regret is that I couldn't be more of a pirate. I couldn't rip you off more. I couldn't steal from you more. I was offended by that. I was like... Yeah, it really... It's not something that should be said. And I mean, I know they're pirates, but this whole insolent right up until the end shtick, it's... It is offensive. You're right. Yeah, and I'm not easily offended. Usually I'm the guy who's saying, let's push boundaries. Usually I'm the guy who's saying, I've got the most horrible thought, and then say something hilarious. Like, that's kind of what... Yeah, but your thoughts are actually hilarious, and they're horrible, but they're they're like, they're horrible, you know? They're not, like, horrible. But when the pirate says things like, oh, colonial society is the true piracy, the bigger piracy, and that the crowns just exploit the world and steal from the people... And then the crowd cheered. It really made me feel alone and kind of small. And like, it wasn't, it was not a nice moment. It, it's offensive. It's an offensive yeah. moment. Honestly, if I could, I'd have everyone in the crowd who cheered rounded up and executed as well. Yeah, hung but themselves. there were so many of them. It's not feasible. But what I am sure of is that they deserve it. Right. I mean, I think the executioner put it quite simply and, and accurately. You're found guilty of insolent resistance against the king's ship without any pretense of authority more than that of your own private depraved wills, but did it also under a black flag. Right. Yeah. Flagrantly denoting themselves as common robbers, opposers, and violators of all law, humane and divine. That's right. They're, they're not only in violation of the law of mankind, they're in violation of the law of the hierarchical divine lord, the exactly, ultimate yeah, power. Totally. Yeah, I thought that was a fine moment for the executioner. It was not enough to make up for the earlier fumble, but it was it was pretty good. Yeah, and he th- that one on the end, he just had such a hangable face today. Yeah, He's just like I find most hang-bait. of them do, but that one especially. It was beautiful overall. I support hanging. Well, it's fun to watch. Yeah. I always bring a whole family out. It's the social event of the week, honestly. And one of the great things is it warns the sailors. It warns the sailors of what happens if they step out of, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's that's the functional part of it, but the entertainment part of it is not to be downplayed. Right. I mean, isn't that what life is really about? Make yeah, it worthwhile, absolutely. a vibrant life, a fun life. It's not just the formalities of keeping the trade routes going. It's like having that spark of life and appreciating the arts and watching hangings. Exactly. Yeah. There's certain nobles I would never even speak with unless we saw each other at the hangings. And it really helps to keep those social bonds together. You know, like a colony without pirate hangings is like food without spices. Thank you. Yes. And that's why we have to travel around the whole world, hanging people to get more spices. Sometimes the puzzle pieces just fit together like a pirate's neck and a rope. Yeah, pirates, uh, criminals, layabouts, louts, drunkards, all of them, absolutely. All the worthless drivel of the world. <coughs> Hang them, I say. That's <coughs> the sound of their throat letting out its last little bit of sound. If someone told me they were going to take away the hanging, I would be tying oh. people up. I would be 
recreating society in my image. Like I personally, you got to keep the hangings. If I had a choice between losing the hangings or losing our big beautiful wigs, our big beautiful oh wealthy guy wigs. Ooh, I do um, love these wigs. Me too. It's a tough choice, but I'd have to lose the wigs. I'm just going to say it. The public hanging is just... Are there other ways that we could murder people in public in a spectacular way and keep the wigs? Let's just say no for the sake of argument. Okay, if the answer was no to that, then... It's supposed to be a hard question. (sighs) Yeah. You know, I hate even answering hypotheticals like this where it's just not true. Like, we don't have to decide between these. So why should I have to make that decision in this arbitrary game? I'm sorry, I just don't, I just sometimes don't like instructive. I'm just saying sometimes a hypothetical can be instructive in I a mean, way. if it makes a point I like, then I will. But Probably if it's notice, forcing but, me to yeah. say something I hate, then... No, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying for sure. Sorry, I, did, I didn't mean to. I think it was just... I was still so offended from earlier that... Now I'm getting offended at things you said, even though it wasn't that bad. Yeah, I only meant to talk about myself. But uh, if I overstepped that, I don't know. I might have been shaken up by some of the offensive things we heard earlier that disrupted an otherwise entertaining experience. Yeah, we should just sip our tea and calm ourselves for a moment and let the offense, uh, let herself process it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what those pirates were saying about opening a daycare, but I am glad they were all hanged. Yeah, those ones especially. Something about the way they were talking and yeah, absolutely. It's offensive. Not. Kept saying, "Oh, I have a time machine." This. What does that even mean? Time uh, machine. Time, time machine. Not even a thing that exists in fiction. What the hell is that? Yeah. And that was two wealthy aristocratic hierarchists discussing the day's hanging. Do you think that the the, the sort of enduring um, iconography and and popular idea of the pirates could is rooted in that that sort of egalitarian utopian common support for pirates back then? I think that's part of it. I think this is one of the reasons why people love pirates. I mean, you know, after Robert Louis Stevenson, pirates were introduced into the the culture and consciousness of children right? So that children grow up with pirates. And so pirates have kind of this special place in a lot of our hearts and minds. But I do think that there is still this kind of lurking memory that pirates were kind of fighting for justice, that they took on these most powerful people. And I think this is one of the things that motivates people to to want to understand pirates and to regard them still in a way as kind of cultural heroes, that element is still there. It's sometimes submerged, but I think it's still there and it's part of the attraction of these outlaws. I mean, pirates are really like other outlaws. America has a romance with the outlaw, right? Outlaws are are culture heroes in America and the pirates are just, I think, one of the best examples of that. Well, this, this has been a super fascinating interview. The graphic novel's awesome. The book's awesome. Pirates are really cool, really mind-blowing and expanding. I, I'm There's something I'm so fascinated with. We touched on it before, and I, I just wanted to throw it to you one last time before we we wrap up here, which is the the edgy comedy and the subversiveness, the frivolity, the, the convivialness, the mirthfulness, merriness. What, how... Why were pirates so funny? How did 
being funny and mirthful and all this stuff help them? And yeah. do you have any stories or anecdotes about that that might be uh, illustrative for our audience? Okay, but just imagine this. You've worked for years of your life in this really dangerous, difficult line of work, right? You've seen your friends beaten to death by the captain. You've probably got scars on your back from a flogging that you yourself got. You've eaten this horrible food and you've got nothing. They, they cheat you out of your wages. Imagine the joy when you can set up your own ship and run it however you want. So, so joy and mirth and happiness and singing and dancing and glee are all part of the pirate experience. And one form this took was humor. Like I'll give you an example. One of the things pirates would do uh, when they captured, especially a big ship that had not just a captain, but kind of a wealthy captain, they would go into the captain's cabin and take out his fanciest clothes and dress up almost in drag and parade around the ship for each other in these kind of shows, right? And what they're basically doing is making fun of aristocratic culture. Like, look how they dress, but they're also getting a kick out of it. So, so that's one example. They would do things like, uh, there was one instance in which uh, a merchant sh a ship captain was being released, and he swore he was going to go home and tell the British government all about this. Well, the pirates said, yeah, give our best wishes to the turnip man by whom they meant King George. Right, They call him the turnip man because he was very interested in agriculture and growing turnips and that kind of thing. And then one more, there was an instance where pirates captured a prize ship and they had basically taken most everything they wanted off of it. But then they saw these bundles of papers and these were decrees from King George, basically about pirates. And so they told the people on that ship, give us all these boxes of paper. And the person bringing them say, why would you want these? And the pirate's answer was, we need toilet paper. You're going to use the king's decree as toilet paper. <laughs> there you go. There's an attitude for you. Oh, that's oh, awesome. <laughs> um, well, the new graphic novel is Under the Banner of King Death. Thanks so much for joining us today, Marcus. This was great, really inspiring history and hilarious. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on our show, but also bringing this information forward to people and popularizing it through graphic novels. It's just awesome stuff. Well, I'm, I'm really, it's really been a pleasure being with you guys. And I'll just say that uh, we still have things we can learn from pirates about democracy, about history from below, about standing up to powerful people. And in this instance, the actual history is much better and much more inspiring than the Hollywood fantasy. Well, it's uh, that time of the episode again, near the end. Oh, yeah, that time. Time where you start wrapping things up. So it's like a certain feeling comes over you when you know that, ah, oh, it's coming to an end. It's like, it's, it's. You start having these urges to like thank the guest for being on the show. Thank the listeners for listening. Thank right, the patrons yeah. for helping make it all possible. I find pirates energizing. I don't know. There's something just so fucking cool about pirates. It's legitimately fascinating too, like seafaring bandits. You know, for probably as long as there's been boats, there's been seafaring bandits. Having a boat when other people don't have boats, or even when other people do have boats but aren't prepared to fight on it. Like, you have all these undefended boats probably. Right. Right. 
different points in his like i mean yeah boating i agree with you that boating in general implies the existence of seafaring bandits yeah you can't have a boat system that's just built on assuming that everyone there's going to be no bandits i mean unless you live in a library socialist utopia where there's no point in banditry because everything's provided to you anything you could steal you would already be provided in abundance and even if you did steal it people would be like okay that was weird i guess i'll just go to the library and get another one for myself report that someone else has it now we're going to talk more about that really soon but we're out of time for this week so just one last time a round of thanks on us a thank to everyone a thank in every pot thank here thank there thank everywhere thanks of course to the great marcus redeker for sharing his expertise with us for an incredible conversation. And thank you, dear listener, most of all. (laughs) You think we should thank the listeners most of all, or the patrons most of all, or Marcus Redeker most of all? Maybe, sorry, that's an inappropriate question when we're trying to wrap up. I'm proposing you big philosophical. Yeah, no, those are are podcasting questions that I think have vexed podcasters for generations. Maybe we should just thank the earth. Does that sound weird? Uh, it sounds a I mean, little bit... It's kind of cool in a way, but I feel a little... I think thanking the Earth makes sense. <laughs> I feel like thanking the Earth too frivolously is slightly offensive because thanking the Earth has got such a... Hmm. Maybe thanking frivolously in general is a little bit offensive. I don't know if... Yeah, you should only offer thanks if you truly, deeply mean them to not dilute the deep feeling of thanks. Yeah, but there's no scarcity of thanks. There's just different levels of... And types of thanks. Well, maybe there shouldn't be. There should only be a deep... If you're not, like, nearing tears with how grateful you are, you just shouldn't <laughs> offer thanks. <laughs> I mean, there's there's thankfulness as an experience, like gratitude, like that feeling you're talking about. That's almost separate from the social procedure establishing, like, respect. And, it's yeah, it's different. But I guess I do genuinely feel gratitude for everyone that we've thanked. Yeah. No matter how frivolously it was worded. But we take kind of an irreverent pirate perspective on thanking. All right. Well, you all have a good night, good evening, good morning, whatever. And we'll you'll hear us next time on the next episode. That's right. And that's an absolute guarantee. All right. All right. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the grand opening of our historically accurate and pirate-themed daycare facility. Thank you all for being here today, and kids, the outfits look great. That's a historically accurate pirate if I've ever seen one. And that's no easy feat. That's no easy feat. And it was no easy feat to start this daycare. A lot of daycare providers and facilities, they'd settle for, you know, hook hands, they'd settle for patches and peg legs, a parrot on the shoulder. Yeah, no, we set out to go the extra mile and really earn the trust of parents and children alike. Children alike, yes. And yeah, many people asked us how we came to be small business owners in the daycare industry. And Good question. Today, on the grand opening, we thought we'd share our story. Our industry secrets. So yeah, our story starts a little unconventionally, perhaps, for a small business, but not that unconventionally. Uh, it's, it begins with an assault. We assaulted Mr. History without warning, and we stole his time travel device, and we went back in time to become seafaring pirates to get booty and treasure and plunder, because to do that in the current day would be too complicated, and obviously we'd probably be arrested. And Yeah, um, absolutely. But back in then, it was the golden age, so we 
assaulted Mr. History, and our idea, our plan was that we'd return. So it's obviously wrong to assault someone. So we returned to Mr. History before he was assaulted, let him know about the whole thing, and then conspire with him to right. kind of fake that he was being assaulted by hiring an actor and basically going through the whole motion so the timeline wouldn't be broken, but we could retroactively sort of get his consent for it. Yeah, it's one of the benefits of time travel. You can go back and fix things before they happen so that you know it ends up being a victimless crime. But that was just the start of our journey. And we encountered a few complications along the way. You know, for anyone who thinks opening a daycare in this economy, it's easy. No. Uh, you're absolutely dead wrong. One of the biggest issues that happened was that my partner here was ended up captured by the state authorities. Whoops. They're cracking down on pirates. What can I say? It's not my fault. Yeah, we were having so much fun being pirate. We forgot, oh, it's the mid-1910s. Major crackdowns are coming. Yeah. We'd been fruitfully plundering for months and yeah. over a year fruitfully plundering yeah no we sang as much every day on the oh. decks of the ships yeah and then you were sentenced to death in the in a caribbean colony to be hung in front of all the settlers and slaves yep and uh it looked like things were to the outside observer to the untrained eye it would appear that i faced death and that i sort of boldly said a few words in defiance and then i was hanged righteously a free man in an unfree world but that's not what really happened at all, because you traveled back in time to yeah. before that After happened. After you were hanged, I was like, oh, we can't let this stand. I'm going to travel back in time to before you were captured. You've got to make it still look like I got hanged, so the timeline's preserved, of course. Yeah, exactly. So, and then we conspired to make it seem as if you were actually captured, but uh, you weren't. And We, we found a suicidal man, and uh, he said that if we paid out his family and treasure, which we gratefully, we just to show how moral this is, we did even more than we needed to. And he was going to die anyway. He was dying of a, a terminal illness within the next few months. I wanted to go out on his terms. These were his terms. Yeah. And yeah, we, we couldn't be more this grateful. the noblest sort of youth for-profit identity swapping euthanasia, I think in all of pirate history, but I'd have to ask Marcus Redeker to be sure. But then, you know, this all caused a even more unexpected side effect, which was at this point, there was two of me and only one of Sean. Right. Because uh, he went back in time to a place where both of us right. were. So, so we thought we, we got to kill him. Yeah. We'll kill the original me so that there'd only be one of us. But then no, when we then tried be no that. conflict. Yeah, we did right. it. And I became incredibly you sick. Really it was sick. It was some cancer. Tuberculosis, yeah, COVID type. Kind of coronavirus. Who knows? Locusts. Yeah, it was horrible. I'm just calling it time sickness. At that time sickness, it was no laughing matter. So the only way we thought we could fix that was to go back in time again and make it seem like we'd killed the original me, but actually not killing the original me, replacing me. Yeah, we went back in time again. So now there's a total of three errands there. And me and current Aaron, Aaron here, we're talking to past alternative Aaron who's going to be killed. And basically we conspired with him to get an actor to fake being killed in his place. Yeah, as far as I know, that version of me is still living a full and happy life in the past. I'm not sure if he went on to fake time sickness earlier you through some sort of advanced trickery that he didn't share with us, or if time sickness legitimately happened until we closed the loop. I think it, time sickness legitimately happened. Right. That's how I remember it anyway, but I'm not sure quite if... That version of me is different from this version. Right, and he might have went back in time and replaced something that happened to right. you and you wouldn't even know. Yeah, how would I? Uh, but after all this, I mean, most small business owners are be giving up. And I think that's 
Um, yeah, they, you know, we're a little bit different. We saw a disruptive vision for the future, and that's what we were pursuing with this historically accurate pirate daycare. But then we ran into another snag, which is that we realized we actually couldn't bring back all of the treasure that we'd collected through the time portal that the time machine creates. It just, yeah. the time portals don't work that way. It doesn't like work that. that way. We've been plundering and plundering and plundering, and... There'd be no way to take it back. And then we thought, well, what would a pirate do? Well, a pirate would just spend it. But then we thought, okay, what would a historically inaccurate pirate do? And we that's when we came on the idea. We'll bury the treasure. We'll bury the treasure. Yeah. So we're going to create a map with an X on it where we hide the treasure. We'll bury it underground. And we'll X marks the spot. Exactly. In the future, go and dig it up. And then we'll right. be rich and we'll be able to open our daycare. And so we told that to other pirates and they said that they were going to do it too. And that they planned to bury treasure all over the world in a bunch of hidden places because they thought it was such a good idea that we introduced to them. Right. Uh, so we had to go back in time and stop that by sort of inoculating them from the idea by calling people who bury treasure because uh, we wanted the history yeah, to stay the same. Right. 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 We basically yeah, called them pirate names. We don't we won't repeat them here. But. We sort of said that people who bury treasure were all those things. So, yeah. But we also won so much respect that everyone was really nice about it when we announced that we were going to do that. Um, and they all pretended that they liked the idea and that they were going to do it to keep the timeline straight. Yeah, yeah. We didn't want to change history so that pirates actually buried treasure. That would just go against our whole project from the start. So, um, and then, the oh, at this ones. point, there was a little thing happened. We can't talk too much about it. We briefly overshot on the return trip and the time machine and ended up in the future added a zero yeah and then our time machine was broken and we ended up having to become spacefaring pirates in order to just get the parts to get back exactly to fix the time machine but we can't give a lot of details about what happens in the future no it's uh um, there's sort of like a prime directive type thing about time yeah. travel and uh, at first we thought it was sort of goofy, foolish, but through the persuasive power of argument, frankly, they convinced us that we should abide at all the benefits of it and stuff. They were like, hey, you don't want to change your pirate history. If you go back and tell them about us, that'll change our history. So we, we were like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, so so we, we, that's no as much details. as we could say on that. But yeah, we did eventually get back to the present, but there was another wrinkle at this point, which is that our treasure wasn't there because... In history from the present, someone named Mr. Pickle had discovered our hidden treasure. Old Mr. Pickle, 71-year-old. And dug it up. So we had to go back in time again to prevent him from digging up our treasure. But we wanted to preserve the timeline. So, of course, we captured him. We tied him up. We hid him down in a basement like a sort of gangster or... It's a, it's a horrible thing to do, but frankly, we did it. And we lived as him for a couple of weeks, wearing his clothes. We'd trade off shifts. We had wigs made like him right? Um, so we could fit in. And then we discovered the treasure in the guise of him. We got all the same news, news coverage that he got, so there wouldn't be a wrinkle in time. And then after we were done that, we were like, well, kidnapping someone and holding them against their will is wrong. So we went back in time and met with him before we captured him. Right, and to conspire with conspired him. Conspired with him to have an actor come in and fake it. So the whole time we had captured an actor who was a willing participant and was being paid well in treasure. And he took a piece of the treasure, but he was happy just to get the fame and use it to sort of launch his next phase. Right. He uh, spent that whole time when we thought we had him tied up on a, an island sipping drinks on the beach. So it worked out great for everybody. Everybody got a piece of the treasure. And then we finally made it back to the present with the treasure. And the last thing we had to do, of course, was return the time machine to Mr. History. So we got the same actor who had previously kidnapped and we threw him some more treasure 
So right. he could pretend to be Mr. History getting assaulted. To yeah, for that original loop. assault way back at the beginning. Um, and for his part, Mr. History thought it was a great idea. He was laughing. Uh, he was laughing pretty hard when we explained to him what we'd done. And he took back his time travel device, which was now upgraded. Right. We had a bit um, of so more future technology. Yeah. And he said we could do it any time. We could come and right. assault him and take it. And or assault an actor playing him. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, the first time it feels, I don't know, the first time it probably is the actor, right? But maybe, maybe not. Actually, Mr. History is here tonight. Mr. History, you in the audience? Oh, hey, boys. Thank you so much for inviting me, having me. I'm so proud of you two for setting up this daycare center. And uh, yeah, I just want you to know I'm going to send my own kids here. We'll be happy to care for them. It'll be an honor, Mr. History. There's one thing we ask, and we're quite strict about this. Those children must reflect the irreverent and democratic character of pirates when they dress up as pirates at our daycare. That's So one little measly... Yeah, we, we ask that of all the kids. Ask. Every kid in our pirate daycare, we ask them of that. And uh, your kids will be no di- no special treatment for your kids, Mr. History. And oh, I think... It's kind of pirate code. Right. Um, I think also we had a scientist in the audience who just wanted to make a, a public comment on the record about what science says. Yes, I'm a scientist. All of the studies show that children perform better when they're introduced to historically accurate pirates at daycare. We've known this for a long time, and it's just a matter of time, thanks to you boys, that we'll have a pirate revolution in daycare and transform our society. That's just my opinion, but studies are clear. Your daycare is desperately needed for families across Wrongtown. I say that as a scientist. I'm publishing a peer-reviewed article making the same basic argument today to commemorate the opening of your daycare. And, you know, usually we don't dedicate peer-reviewed papers to privately owned businesses on their inauguration day, but you, frankly, you, you inspired me. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Scientist. It's... Uh... You know, on behalf of uh, all small business owners, I thank you for making an exception for us. Well, that's almost all the time we have for our great uh, daycare opening. Yeah, it's just about over, but... Thanks to our awesome guest of honor, Marcus Redeker. I appreciate that. You you are Sean or Aaron? Uh, I'm I'm Sean. Okay. Uh, I'm Aaron. Okay, good. Good to meet you both. Yeah, we're talking to you in person for the first time. And yeah, we couldn't have done this without you. You were such a big inspiration to us, both in the idea for this, but also because, you know, when I remember when we first asked you about this idea, we pitched it to you. It meant a lot to us. And uh, we actually have a recording of it here. We're going to play for everybody. So... That's our idea for historically accurate daycare and how we're going to pull it off. What do you think? Yeah, you think that's okay? Or? No, that'll be great. I, I, I'd love to see what you guys do with that. And yes, we'll pause that tape. And do, you, do you mind that we took a clip of you and played it out of context like that in front of the audience? Oh, I, I was hoping you guys would do that. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you were uh, hoping that we would do that. Your hopes and uh, our reality aligned. That's amazing. <laughs> That's right. And I'll just pop out that tape. And yeah, that's the end of Seriously Wrong. Yeah, check out the graphic novel Under the Banner of King Death, which is out now. David Lester and Marcus Redeker adapted this book from some of Redeker's nonfiction works, and the editor is Paul Buell. And hey, 
you know, if you like Seriously Wrong, why not head over to iTunes, give us a rating, leave a review, tell a friend, or join our very exclusive Patreon community for just $6 a month. Yeah, that funds the show so we don't have to resort to high seas piracy. Right. Um, and hit the high seas that way. Yeah, we, and we can, can just make, focus uh, on focus on making great episodes. Yeah, and recording and finding get, working with guests and doing the sketches and reading books, all that good stuff. All right, uh, bye everybody. Bye.